0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined by John Allen Gay today as we have a conversation with Dr. Sumatra Mitra. Dr. Mitra is a historian and conservative foreign policy thinker. Our conversation with Dr. Mitra draws on his background as an elected associate fellow at the Royal Historical Society. We cover the history of the European tradition of realism from Benjamin Disraeli to Clemens von Metternich. Dr. Mitra is also a key voice in the foreign policy of conservatism, and our conversation with him draws on his work as a senior editor at the American Conservative and a visiting senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Security Dilemma represents views about foreign policy from, from a transpartisan angle, but it's nonetheless crucial to explore some of the strongest views among both progressives and conservatives. Let's get to the show. Join us for our conversation with Dr. Sumantra Mitra.
1: Dr. Mitra, welcome to Security Dilemma. I wanted to ask you to start off, we could talk a little bit about the state of foreign policy on the right. What makes you hopeful about realist foreign policy in what you're seeing from conservative elected officials today? Thank you for having
2: me. Um, That's a good question. One shouldn't be too hopeful and optimistic if you're a realist. um, Things can just go real bad, real quick. Um, but that being said, uh, you and I, we both kind of like grew up uh, during the war on terror era. And we kind of like saw how things were, even like in 2011, like with, you know, even after Obama came talking about pivot to Asia and coming out of Middle East and Afghanistan. Um, and then the Libyan intervention happened. So it, it took a long time and a, and a lot of structural changes and rhetorical changes and personal changes and Kind of like uh, seeding the the rhetorical ground with with realism. Uh, it took a long time up until last month, for example, when um, in the Ukraine aid question, there were like seventy Republican congressmen who voted against it, which would have been unthinkable uh, ten years back, or even even pre 2016. So a few things happened. Obviously, um, given that we're realists, we kind of like obviously start with the structural question. Uh, Twenty years of war on terror, um, nothing changed. Like both of the you know regions are kind of like hotbed of problem. Iraq is under the influence of Iran. There's like lots of problems going on in the Middle East. Afghanistan obviously is a complete failure. Um, so I think some of the structural issues pushed the the you know people have started people started to think that you know something is wrong from what we are hearing from our elected representatives and what is actually happening on the ground like no matter how much you propagandize that thing you know people can see you know that there's that, not not much is changing we are just spending a lot of money we are doing a whole bunch of things without prioritizing regions or threats and uh and 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 you know uh, at the end of the day it's a democracy people vote and they see that you know those things are changing and Obviously, alongside that, you know, there has been this huge rise of uh, the the kind of like realist adjacent, uh, you know, people on the right. Uh, Donald Trump went to South Carolina, an extremely military heavy state, um, in the peak of 2015 election campaign cycle and said that uh, one of the stupidest things that we did was going to Iraq, like how many people would have thought that would have happened like, you know, up until 10 years back. So you know, th- there is this idea that you know to, to to balance the elite idea of foreign policy, you have to have some sort of counter elite. Fundamentally, the 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 idea comes from the fact that you know if you if you consider a revolution or a reaction, whether it's top down or bottoms up my answer to that question is it's neither it's actually a mixture of both you have a bottom up revolution or a reaction with people you know changing their electoral you know uh, system but you also need to have kind of like a counter elite you also need to have like extremely heavy people on 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 one side of the spectrum talking about like, hey these are the you know the the other ways of how we can do stuff and i think that happened with the with the with the coming of trump and with the rise of this reactionary sort of like right-wing you know populism and i think that the the, the structural factor and the fact that we kind of like change the rhetoric on the right changed the dynamic of porn. i mean there's a, there's still a long way to go um i'm not gonna you know just declare victory and say that mission is accomplished um that never really goes well um but um but i think there is but i think there's a lot of causes to be hopeful um about the coming of realism and realism is a natural tendency on the right. It's a it's a conservative philosophy. You know, we don't want to take more risks. We don't want to spend too much money. These are all instincts which are traditionally on the on the right of the political spectrum, like prudence. You know, it, it's it's not a it's not a progressive cause. It's it's prudence is by definition a very reactionary idea. Um, so I think I think I think there is a lot of to be hopeful about.
1: And I was in Washington. I've been in Washington for a little more than ten years now, so I remember the foreign policy discourse in general uh, pre-Trump, uh, particularly on the right. Uh, realism felt like very much this oddball thing. Like, oh, okay, you're you're into realism. All, all right, like if that's if that's what floats your boat, it was not. Oh, this is a major current. In American political thought, you know, the strongest historical tradition of analysis in foreign policy uh, was this kind of weird thing, and the effect that Trump had on the discourse was to dramatically open the space of discussion. You know, the Overton window got a lot broader, and it was really an effect of uh, you know a figure in a major party who has so much authority in setting the discourse. Uh, repeating messages that were attacking the kind of mainstream uh, of Republican foreign policy policy thought at the time. So I'm curious how you see 2024 shaking out. At the time of this recording, we're about two weeks from the first uh, Republican primary debate. Do you think that there's going to be further movement in the foreign policy space away from the the kind of 2012 uh, neoconservative consensus? I mean, I think you're 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 right about the fact that um,
2: it 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 was a strange time when the the predominant. A theoretical framework of international relations was considered to be something fringe in the, in the last, you know, kind of like uh, 15, 20 years. And, uh, and it always baffled me. it still kind of like baffles me when I hear the term new right. And I, I and I, and I, and I, look, I don't want to you know, sound too pedantic about it, but there is nothing new about the new right. You know, it, it's, it's not, it, it is actually technically the, the old right, you know, it's, it's the, is that is the is the last you know it's the return of the Taftites for example you know it's it's uh, it's uh, it's the Robert Taft and even before that Calvin Coolidge uh, kind of you know uh, philosophy on on the right wing that's come I mean technically coming back now there are obviously some differences like um, like the New Right is obviously more protectionist in a way when it comes to uh, some of the you know more economic issues compared to Calvin Coolidge or or Howard Taft uh, and and all those people, um, but 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 those are those are. Uh, I mean, again, the, the, there is also this 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 tradition of protectionism in, in American foreign policy. Anyway, like I mean, the early years of the Republic were extremely protectionist. So um, so I, I I kind of like find it weird that people say, oh, it's a new right, you know, uh, which is changing the more Thatcherite and Reaganite kind of conservatism. And I'm thinking, like, you know, that's not really what Conservatives used to be um, up until at least mid-1970s. Um, so that's one thing. The second question that you, you, you talk about is how it's going to shape in 2024. Um, you still see the, the fumes of, of neoconservatives within, the, within, a, within a whole section of the right-wing Republican candidates like you. Chris Christie recently went to MSNBC. Weirdly, and and said how uh, we haven't really done much on Ukraine, and Biden is much better than the Republicans on that. Um, uh, Nikki Haley recently went on a campaign trip, and, and and you can you can you can you can see you can hear the words, you know the 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 PR tested the audience tested jokes, you know the the it, it's kind of like a time capsule. Like I tweeted this this morning, like it's like, almost like a time capsule from a different era. You know, like twenty years back, she would have been like, you know that that that's the kind of rhetoric that would have been like very very catchy to uh to a whole bunch of right wing people and that's just not there anymore like if you see the top three uh republican candidates running for president trump obviously uh is i mean i'm not gonna go and say that as far as he's a realist but he's got instincts which are uh more attuned to a to a more uh sort of kind of like a mercantilist attitude like i don't, I don't want to give anything to me and i don't want to make profit out of it and i don't want to spend too much money in europe i don't want to spend too much money in japan and he has been saying that since the 80s for example like there is a there is a video of of trump's uh, interview in the 90, late 1980s where he's talking about the exact same thing about japan you know that we are spending too much money in japan you know so he has got those instincts ron DeSantis, i don't really know much about his foreign policy he kind of like makes um uh, interesting noises on Ukraine and yeah I mean that and, and, and kind of feel like that's his, that's the reality, like that's him. But on the other hand, he also comes and talks about how Cuba is a communist dictatorship and we have to so I don't I don't really know where he stands, but at least on Ukraine he has been quite solid, you know, and and the way I see it, um if he is in the president presidential you know election and he wins and he uh, he doesn't even have to do much about foreign policy if he just goes and says like oh we're just going to cut down on woke and weaponized government we're going to cut down on USAID. we're going to cut down on human rights promotions across the Middle East that tangentially benefits the realists anyway you know most of the most of the issues that the, the reason we are in the Middle East and sometimes like even in 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 Europe is essentially promoting social revolution. so if he cuts down on some of those uh, means of, of of foreign policy promotion then that it's not directly a a realist factor but it would help cutting down on some of the primacist ideas on on the right and the third one vivek ramaswamy i don't really again i don't really know much about him but he's obviously kind of like a trump light figure like he's 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 talking about not doing anything on ukraine he's talking about sending troops on on the mexican border instead of europe complete retrenchment from middle east you know more hawkish on china so you see the, the the top people on the right they are and, and, and you kind of feel like something has changed, you know. Uh, yes, there are Nikki Haley's and Chris Christie's and Mike Pence's, but it's not really catching up anymore. You know, people don't really like that on the right. I don't know much about the left. I, I, I kind of think that there is a whole generation of second tire left wing politicians on the wings who would be a lot more restrained on foreign policy. But the problem with the left is, at the end of the day, they are besotted with this idea of progressive history. I mean, we can go on a different question anyway. It's, it's, it's a philosophical debate. But at the end of the day, if you see history as a progressive force, at one point of time, you have to fight for the progressive force. Because if you don't, then you know it, y- your fundamental worldview kind of collapses in a way. So yes, there are realists on the left. Um Stalin was a was a nationalist on the left. I don't think that's how it's going to work in the US though. But there is a lot more uh there is a lot more scope on the right.
0: As, as someone myself who's, you know, sort of on the left and trying to push for a more realist and restrained foreign policy, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that there's more flexibility when you're when you're in the opposition. You know, like uh, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of Democratic voices struggle to criticize Joe Biden because it's their guy and they're trying to defend him against criticism from, from the right. Uh, in the event that there was a uh, conservative president who might not be, you know, enacting uh, realism to, to the letter or, or to the satisfaction of, of conservative of realists, what can be done for, for a dedication to realism to prevail, um, you know, even, even when you're no longer in the opposition?
2: So there is a question of policy and there is a question of tactics, right? So uh, on the tactical issue, I kind of sympathize with the people on the left because, you know, uh, and there are people on the right, and when you even when you talk about uh, when, when you're criticizing Biden and Biden's foreign policy, there are people on the right saying, Oh, you know, they're instinctively like, Yeah, we need to get out of Afghanistan, but also look at the way the, the withdrawal was done, you know, and and I and I kind of and I kind of understand that because that's their, you know, that's their job, that's that's that, that's what they have to say and that's what they have to do, and you know, you have to criticize Biden being weak um, from the right and all that, but. But that's purely tactical anyway, like that 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 is that is predicated on on winning elections and winning votes and so so I kind of sympathize on that on the left like if if there is a if tomorrow there is a hawkish right wing president um and and you know the Democrats are on the on the on the opposition side, we're gonna see a return to kind of like the gawker and wonket kind of left wing. Uh, opposition to George W. Bush—I used to be—I don't, I don't know if you guys remember that. John probably does. Um, in 2002, 2004, uh, and, and we, we might as well just see a return to those things. But, but on the political, on the policy, on the on the on the theoretical side, I am not really that optimistic on the left. Um, the reason is uh, there was a time when nationalism was an extremely left-wing phenomenon. I mean, historically, if you see, uh, if you if you study the history of Europe, which is pretty much like what anyone has to study anyway, um, liberalism and and even its cousin Marxism was essentially a, a very nationalist phenomenon because the fundamental forces were reactionary imperialism, right? So, uh, if you read the history of of Central Europe, for example, majority of the of the nationalist movements were essentially liberal and left wing. So uh, historically, it has been a left-wing phenomenon. The problem with that now is, one, America is structurally still the most preponderant power in the world, right? So fundamentally, the entire bureaucracy, the entire government structure, the entire, um, uh, the entire apparatus is geared towards uh, continuation of that primacy right so it's 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 a problem not for the left and the right but it's a problem for anyone who wants to be a nationalist in that in that cycle
1: mm-hmm. like you
2: cannot talk about uh, hardcore nationalism it's it's more difficult for the left to because you know culturally they are in power but it's also extremely difficult for the right to go and say hey we don't really care about anyone anything that happens outside our very narrow way of looking at the world so so nationalism has become kind of like a toxic idea on the left, and that, to me, is one, a historical, but second, it's also not really something that even the right would want to see. Like I, we don't, we don't want to polarize the debate about nationalism so much that it becomes a solely right-wing phenomenon, right? I mean, we we have to kind of reach out to the left-wing nationalists and say, hey. We understand that there are, you know, issues about the globe, and you know, we have to be like the moral beacon of of humanity and all that stuff. But also, at the end of the day, there are people on our in our own country we have to care about. You know, there are people in our there there are working class people who are essentially paying the uh, paying the price for a primacy's foreign policy. You know, they are the ones facing an inflation. So I think I think what the what genuine left wing realists can do is uh, be more. Uh, focused on the economic aspect of foreign policy, and say, you know, this is all very good. It's all very moral, but at the end of the day, it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of trade-offs. You know, uh, you care about pe- refugees uh, and and you know and and pride parades in Kiev or Kabul, and you don't really care about much of the people who are dying of fentanyl abuse in in Ohio. So so you know that, that that's the kind of trade-off that I think they need to highlight more.
1: Yeah, that, that last line there, you know, I, I was rather shocked recently to learn that uh, you know, the, the amount of people who died from fentanyl overdoses in the United States is, last year was significantly greater than the number of Americans who died in the entire Vietnam War. And you know, I think that there really is a, uh, a sense of domestic crisis that often doesn't get to uh, inside the Washington bubble. But let's stick with some of those European history themes that you mentioned. You know, there's a a big European tradition of, of realism in foreign policy, and, a, you, and you're a historian. Who are some of the figures that you see as the kind of lions of European realism, folks that today's leaders should be looking to as models? Um where do i start
2: i mean that that is a (laughs) that is a that is a that is a big question um most of our concepts of international relations comes from the frameworks and the and the way europeans and europe and european policy has shaped the globe so um obviously you can go back to to see these um you know uh a great sign or mark of a good writer is someone who writes something that is so profound that that's still debated thousands of years from the time he was he was he was born or he was he, he did his work so even now there is a debate about on what side of, of the political spectrum to see is actually you know whether he was showing Athens and democracy was superior whether he was showing that democracy is bad and it always leads to hubris like Plato like democracy is the second worst thing after after tyranny like whether he was he was fundamentally a conservative who was was who was opposed to any kind of uh, mass you know mob hysteria whether he was um, fundamentally an elitist or whether he was actually opposed to elitism because he was uh, he he was he was worried about uh, the Athenians who went uh, to Sicily so you know uh, the sign of a good historian is something that confuses people, you know, and so obviously if you have to talk about European history and European realism, you have to go back to the CDDs. But in, in more modern times, given that we live in a world created by, uh, by Europe essentially from 15th century onwards. um, I think some of the people that we need to talk about um, European history is one Cardinal Richelieu. Um, uh, uh, there is. There was a friend of mine who's a who's a, who's a journalist. Uh, she's she's a TV anchor and she's a Catholic. And she once asked me a good question: um, the fundamental idea of Catholicism, of universalism, Catholic universalism, and how do you how do you uh, correlate that with realism? And I was like, Did you read anything about Cardinal Richelieu? Like, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's where you should start. Um, the reason why Richelieu is so important is because he. He shows we live in a modern world where nation states are the fundamental actors and national interest is, is where you know, it starts from. I actually have the book by Richelieu uh, right next to me. And, and, and there is this place where he talks about how uh, state ethics, for example, are different. Compared to uh, the ethics of universal morality. And he and he kind of gives an example of, of a very interesting thing. He says that yes, for example, at the end of the day, if, if an if an individual commits a crime, it's up to God to punish that person. But in this mortal universe it's my job to send him to God, you know. <laughs> so, so I think I think that's that's a that's a very interesting way of bridging the gap between between universalist moralism and and uh, very narrow interests. Uh, so I think Richelieu is someone, and also like if you if you if you if you understand the fundamentals of realism about how regime types don't matter, Richelieu saw France's interest uh, in, in a clash with the Habsburgs about the mastery of Central Europe, and he he was fine with. Um, with aligning with the Protestant powers of the north, you know, and that's and that's something which ha, which is a which is a recurring theme in Europe, even when people talk about. And there are some us, you know, there are some on the right, even in in the US and the UK, who are, how do I put it in a polite way, more ethnocentric when it comes to um, when it comes to ideas. And I always tell them that you know if you if you study history, you would realize that that actually doesn't really matter when it comes to interests. Um, and it didn't matter in Europe, it didn't matter in, in in Africa. If you read the history of the Mughal Empire, you know, the Mughals were aligned with the Hindu Rajputs, uh, opposed to the Afghans who, are co- who were Muslims, you know, so it's 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 religion, regime type, these are the things that doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what matters is um, threat perceptions and narrow national interests. So I think Richelieu is someone that everyone obviously should start with. Um, I think uh, Metternich is is someone that everyone should study because he um, he he, uh, he stressed the idea uh, of equilibrium, and people are kind of like think Metternich to be this oh this this old guy who is like an extremely reactionary. He didn't really want to lose his power because he was he was from a privileged class, but at the end of the day, uh, his consideration was whether um, the ethics of great power war. Uh, and 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 mass killing of people uh, trumps over the ethics of revolution and, you know, a uh, Napoleonic kind of like, you know, catastrophe. Um, all of these people grew up and all of this people kind of like reigned during the time of Napoleon. They know what revolutionary principles can do to humanity. Um, and I think to him, it, it was kind of like a trolley problem, like, you know, yes. We might jail a couple of revolutionaries but at the end of the day it stops from a a catastrophic european great power war and finally um i would say i think people should uh study lord canning um i i I kind of joke uh between my friends uh that you know we need to make isolation splendid again um but canning was the one who actually kind of like formalized that idea and said um you know uh, what was this quote uh balance of power in the continent no european police system each country of its own god for us all uh and 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 no treaty uh, respect for treaties but not uh, but caution in extending them and europe's domain uh leads up to the atlantic and england begins there so i think i think that's given that us is, an, is a maritime power similar to similar britain in the 18th and 19th century i think that's uh, that's a that's a principle that Britain needs to follow, uh, America needs to follow as well. So I think if you want me to kind of like highlight four people, uh, I'd say Thucydides, Richelieu, Metternich, and Canning uh, would be someone that you probably need to study about.
1: Well, and if you follow John Quincy Adams, uh, he and Canning were frequent sparring partners, especially around uh, the emergence of the Monroe Doctrine. It was in reaction yep. to a letter uh, by canning proposing a joint policy by the United States and Britain uh, against uh, European colonization uh, in the in the uh, in the new world and the United States more or less agreed but Adams advocated for the United States to articulate an independent vision of how that would look uh, for us but let's uh, you meant since you mentioned Metternich I, I'm I'm curious you know because he kind of is the archetype of realism as an essentially reactionary idea. And I, I wanted to see what your thoughts were in contrasting him with Disraeli, uh, you know, who was definitely a realist opposed to the more uh, universalist idealism of Gladstone, but was also a real reformer, uh, you know, an, an author of one nation conservatism, of a reform bill, how do you see? How do you square that aspect of Disraeli with this more reaction style idea of realism?
2: There, there, there is this interesting. I can't remember where I read that. Whether it was in Kissinger's book or somewhere else uh, about Meternic, um, probably somewhere else. Like there was there was this biography. I'm, 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 I can I can send you the link later on if I can find it. But I can't seem to remember. There was this one place where someone was Someone asked Metanic, like, which country would you like? to rather live in and he said it was england because it's free and then <laughs> and then someone asked him like why don't you have that kind of freedom in in austria and it was like because that's not england so <laughs> it was kind of funny uh <laughs> um the i have two questions I, I i've got two statements about that 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 framing of that question one yes disraeli was obviously relative to metanic a reformer but this really also uh, was in a very different structural system compared to how metanic was metanic came to power at a time and saw the the upheavals of napoleonic war when uh, yes britain was the the preponderant navy on the on the globe but there was a lot of great powers even within the continent 1815 um the most powerful state in continental Europe was not France, it wasn't Prussia, it wasn't Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was Russia. You know, my, my PhD supervisor actually wrote a great uh, paper about defensive realism and the concept of Europe, about how, you know, he, he kind of showed that, you know, uh, defensive realism is a more strong theoretical framework compared to offensive realism, because for offensive realism, Russia would have continued on its offensive binge in 1815, given how strong Russia was and given the relative decline and the relative weakness of other powers in the region. But Russia didn't because its security was satiated and it moved back and it understood that it, it you know, it could move back to its uh, to a stable balance of power. So that kind of like, I mean, my supervisor showed that kind of like shows how defensive realism is a, it's a stronger theoretical framework compared to offensive realism. But anyway, um, my point is Metternich in 1815, 1820s, it was a very different time compared to Disraeli um, in, in, in the more later part of the, of the, of the, of the, of the century. Disraeli was obviously a reformer when it comes to um, uh, domestic politics, but he was also an extremely imperial guy. Uh, Metternich was not technically uh, an imperialist, comp- like similar to Disraeli. Um, and, the, and the more important part of that question is, uh, the Israelis Britain was fundamentally a peerless power uh, in those days. Um, Austro-Hungarian Empire, especially after uh, when Metternich was there, was, number one, not that powerful. Um, and second, it was also, the Israeli's Britain didn't really have because it was a time of expansion it was a time of you know all, all the all the uh, mercantilism that was happening in India you know all the resources that was coming being drenched all the you know technical advancements of railways and all that kind of stuff that was happening in the Empire in the East um, they didn't really face that kind of domestic problems that Metternich's uh, you know politics faced in Austro-Hungarian Empire for example um, There were people who could be from Manchester or Birmingham who could just go to Calcutta and start a shop and get married to a local woman and, you know, have something, you know, have a life there. Uh, That wasn't the case uh, during Metternich's Austro-Hungarian Empire. So, yes, I mean, when it comes to domestic politics, there is a difference between Disraeli, the reformer, and Metternich, the reactionary. But on foreign policy, fundamentally, Disraeli wasn't that different. The only difference was just really lived in a time when Britain was fundamentally peerless and Metonic never really had that luxury.
0: How do you how do you think the writings of these like 18th century and classical political theorists should affect the way that we think about nuclear weapons and you know this this age in which the stakes of war can have almost you know no ceiling.
2: So um nuclear weapons changed the world in some ways as obviously uh, most people know it it kind of increased the the threat perceptions threshold of different great powers it it made people uh, ma- made states and actors more risk averse in a way um there is this huge literature about how uh, not just between US and Soviet Union but also between India and Pakistan in the in the 99 Kargil issue or or between India and China recently and how like nuclear weapons kind of like you know uh, makes both of these countries more risk averse like Pakistan is always considered to be this huge, you know, uh, tribal and jihadist actor with with, with extreme risk prone, uh, you know, instincts. But if you remember recently, uh, even like in 2017 or something, when there was this kind of like border clash and Imran Khan was the president of, of Pakistan. And he came and said, like, you know, with the kind of weapons we have and with the kind of weapons we you have, do we could we even afford to go to war with each other? And that's a that's a very deterrent instinct. That's a that's a mutually assured destruction uh, idea. So uh, so in some ways, um, uh, nuclear weapons have changed the the way the nuclear revolution has changed the way uh, states behave. But on the other hand, the the fundamental you know principles of realism are classics because they're timeless you know uh, hubris is a constant um just because nuclear weapons have increased the threshold of of risk between two actors doesn't mean that there is no risk when the, the same two great powers are kind of like operating in a space which is extremely you know uh, prone to any kind of you know um uh uh accident, right? So, uh, the, 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 the idea of security dilemma, the, the name of your podcast, it's still the same, you know, it, it, the, the, that that concept didn't really go away, you know, it, it there is, and we can see that in recently in, in China and Philippines and, and the Chinese actions, right? Philippines, talking about Philippines, you know, we have uh, treaty alignment with, with Philippines, there is a risk of chain-ganging uh, us to a great power war, so that didn't really change. So, uh, on one hand, yes, nuclear weapons have Increased the the way we view uh, catastrophic great power wars. It kind of decreased the number of great power wars that we have. I mean, obviously, U.S. and Russia probably would have been war without the nuclear weapons over Ukraine at uh, this point of time. Um, but also, um, fundamental the the way states behave uh, in in the international anarchy didn't really change much. So we still have to be we still have to follow some of those rules.
1: You mentioned offensive realism a few minutes ago, so of course we have to talk about the most famous offensive realist, John Mearsheimer, uh, and uh, Bridge Colby, who's one of the most influential offensive realist voices in Washington right now. They both argue that China can plausibly become the hegemon of East Asia if America and our partners in the region don't work hard together together to stop them. Uh, And in Bridge Colby's case, he's arguing that Taiwan is really the decisive ground for the future of Asia and that we should be really building up a powerful military deterrent in the area in order to prevent Chinese expansion. Do you think that that's the correct approach for the United States to East Asia and China?
2: So (laughs) I, John is obviously, uh, it's kind of like a like a mentor to me. Like I've obviously used his theories in my in my PhD, um, in 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 my research. And Colby's a friend. Bridge is a friend of mine. So um, I have to, I have to say that I don't disagree with um, their basic worldview and the threat assessment about China. Um, that you know, th- 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 there is truth in the fact that China is, or has been historically the. Uh, the greatest threat that the. US might face in 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 a matter of great I mean if you see like we discussed this before um, between you and I John um, the, the US has faced of all the great power challenges that the US has faced including you know Imperial Spain Nazis Imperial Germany Imperial Japan you know and all that uh, Soviet Union the the purely from a numbers perspective, China is miles ahead of any of those, um, you know, states or or challenges in, in the past. China, the, the population of China combined, uh, the population of China is more than the combined population of, of European Union, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and UK. You know, it, it, the amount of manpower that could be is just unthinkable. It, it, I mean, we, we, we have no frame of reference to even, you know, understand uh, how uh, a great power rivalry in its full peak might look like, you know, because of the of the manpower advantage that China has. Manufacturing, uh, US is not like the 1950s. Like at that point of time, it was like, what? 37% of the manufacturing of the world. Now it's like uh, 15, not even that. Um, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but something similar to that. Like it's a huge loss of manufacturing, you know, capacity of the US. Um, um, GDP wise, the Chinese GDP is almost like 70 Four percent of current US GDP, uh, which is again unthinkable compared to Soviet Union or even the Nazis, uh, or not to mention Imperial Japan. So yes, China is a huge threat. It's a huge challenge. Um, all that understandable. That being said, I disagree with some of the policy preferences of both John and uh, Cold Bridge, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention why first of all for john i don't really understand whether his his theory about china and offensive realism is a descriptive theory or a prescriptive theory like he i mean if if he if he, is he talking about chinese hegemony leading to a security dilemma that would propel the us to go to conflict with china is that like guaranteed is that is that the same as you know how 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 do, how can he how can anyone claim that something is absolutely predestined and it's going to happen regardless of our choices i mean there is a choice of you just walking away you know i mean it's it, it might not happen but it is a choice there is there um there is a choice of buck passing which i'm going to talk more about later anyway um so i so i don't really understand what he means or how i mean i need more clarification from his side to actually feel or understand how he views china as a hegemonic threat um As to what Bridge mentioned about Chinese uh, invasion of Taiwan and a domino, I've got three very specific, simple points to make. Number one, Asia in 2023 is not the same as Europe in 1949. You know, China, it's a huge power, but it is also surrounded by states which are either treaty allies with the United States or aligned with the United States when it comes to interests. right? Japan, it's a huge economic power and naval power. Australia, miles away, uh, uh, literally uh, an unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States, right? India, massive manpower, manufacturing cap- capacity aligned with the U.S. on foreign policy, nuclear power, the Himalayas stretching between India, you know in- in India and China, um, Philippines. Again, treaty ally uh, gives island bases to the U.S. in case of an emergency. If there is a hegemonic war uh, in Asia, which I don't foresee to be happening in, in the way it's it's kind of like portrayed, but if that's the worst case scenario, Philippines is a it's a huge you know benefit for the United States Navy. Vietnam, not technically an ally, but opposed to China, the only country that China actually went to war. So China is surrounded by powers which are if not directly aligned to the US, at least opposed to China's rise, right? So that's a structural advantage that wasn't there in 1949 Europe. The major powers were all decimated. Soviet Union was a huge manufacturing power producing 30,000 tanks a year, you know, and and that's the kind of thing that, you know, the US doesn't have to face um, in in Asia now. Second, um, if Taiwan falls, a huge if, obviously, but because Taiwan is a is a very relatively powerful uh, country, 24 million people. C1 invasions are always difficult. The same you know weapons that China can use for A2AD, as Gene Coates once wrote, could be used by Taiwan for A2AD. Right. So, so so some of those advantages are there in Taiwan. Taiwan is a 24 million you know there's 24 million people in Taiwan, so it's obviously like pacification is a, is a huge issue even after occupation. Um, so all of those things considered, the, Ch- the entire Chinese Navy would be facing Taiwanese missile, coastal missile batteries, right, in, in case of a C-1 invasion. That's a huge loss of manpower, by the way. Obviously, China has got a lot of lot of people to go to war with. But, you know, b- 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 no one knows what happens when body backs come, re- you know, return uh, to, to the people. So anyway, so but even if Taiwan falls, I haven't seen any evidence from either John or Bridge to show that that would lead to a domino in Asia. Like, What is the second stage of that question? If Taiwan falls, if China occupies Taiwan, if, if, ta- if there is Chinese flag in, in Taiwanese mainland and that's, you know, Chinese Navy uh, is there, how does that change the balance of power in that region? What happens after that? Does China attack Japan? Do they attack Australia? Do they have to go to, you know, invade India? Do they go to Vietnam? Do they you know seal off Philippines in, in in the international waters? Like what happens then? right? I mean do, uh, Japan, when it was pursuing hegemony in Asia, was simultaneously warring in China, in Philippines and against the. US and in Singapore against the British Empire. Do we see similar kind of thing happening uh, from China? Do we do they have the capacity? Do they have the will, do they have the intention? Do they even have the appetite? For that kind of like, I mean, what, what would they gain from that anyway? Like, well, I mean, they are already, you know, their economy is going down. But at the end of the day, you know, they still want to live in the order, which has been beneficial for them. I mean, we we think that there are revisionist power because of Hong Kong. But what is the limit of the revisionism? We, we have got no answers to these questions. So we don't know that. The third point that I'm going to make is a very small thing that I recently found out. Like I was in a congressional uh, meeting. And uh, there were some congressmen who were going to some of the um, Polynesian islands. And uh, they were saying, oh, you know, Chinese influence is gaining because China is investing a whole bunch of money. And I asked them a simple question. I was like, and they were asking me, like, what should be done? And I told them that, have you asked why Japan, for example, is not investing in Tonga, right? I mean, if, if we are worried about Chinese influence in Polynesian islands, japan spends 1% of the defense of, of the gdp in defense they are ex- they are an extremely rich country if we really want to offset chinese influence uh, you know uh, financially all we have to do is essentially offset the chinese investment in the polynesian islands and that is something that could be done by both the united states and japan because they are both rich countries so i don't really foresee the fact that we have to go to war for taiwan in taiwan to stop a chinese hegemony because i don't see that kind of Chinese Germany happening at least in the near foreseeable future. So yes, I agree that China is the biggest great power challenge to the U.S. that the U.S. hasn't faced in its entire human history. Um, but also, that doesn't mean that there needs to be a war. Uh, there are, you know, we we essentially won the Cold War not by going to war with the Soviet Union, but by essentially balancing them financially and bleeding them dry and kind of containing them. I think that could be done with China too.
1: You wrote a brief recently for the Center for Renewing America earlier this year, arguing for the United States to pivot away from Europe. What was your case there?
2: The case there was um, one of the primary causes of destabilization in a great power is overstretch. Um, America is overstretched. So so fundamentally, if you if you historically read the American grand strategy, go back to Morgenthau and stuff, like there are two regions. uh, John would say that John Mearsheimer would say it's there are three, but I think Morgenthau's idea of two regions are more important. Um, There are two regions which are fundamentally important to U.S. grand strategy. That is Western Europe, um, because if Western Europe goes, the Atlantic is uh, under threat. And, uh, and, and Eastern Asia, like Asia-Pacific, Eastern Asia-Pacific. Um, I don't foresee a hegemonic threat in the European continent. The biggest hegemonic threat that could have been it was Russia. And they made a huge mistake and they are suffering because of that. The, we are trying to throw Russia away from the ranks of a great power, and that's an understandable instinct for a rival great power. Like, I can understand why some in the U.S. national security community would want to do that. But in order to do that, we are also taking the majority of the defense and security and financial burden of a continent, which we shouldn't take. We can still attempt or wish to decimate Russian status as a great power in the uh, in the global, in, in the balance of power in Europe, without taking the primary burden of doing so. So my, so I, I differentiate between some from my side, uh, who would be like pro-Russian, for example, and say like, oh, Russia has got a valid interest in in Eastern Europe. I don't care whether if Russia has a valid interest. All I care about is I whether I am taking the burden of of balancing Russia, and I don't think I should. I think there are. Countries which are in Europe, um, Germany and France, for example, uh, financially extremely powerful. Poland, uh, a very strong military uh, heavy country. Britain, obviously, rich country and strong navy. Um, I think I think we should slowly delegate um, the, the the fundamental idea of balancing your Euro- uh, balancing Russia and Europe to these European countries, which are more than capable. And in some ways, probably even willing after the the war in in Ukraine. What is not happening, however, is they understand as much as we do, that for as long as we are there, they would not take the burden. It is, again, it is a very, I mean, we, the fact that we cannot buck pass our security burden to Europe doesn't mean they cannot buck pass their security burden to us. And that's exactly what they're doing. When people say, oh, Germany is a weak power, I think Germany a very smart power because they have been very financially successful um, without taking any of the burdens that they need to take, given, given that they are technically the natural Central European hegemon uh, and economic power. So I think President Trump, for example, had a great instinct of taking troops out of Germany, but then he put them in Poland. Why would Germany pay for defense if American troops are based in Poland between Germany and Russia? So fundamentally, you know, according to international relations, a state would either externally balance form alliances or internally balance and develop their own defensive capabilities. We are not incentivizing Europe to do either of that. You know, we are not letting Europe to form any kind of traditional alignments for example britain and poland or britain and and the baltics or france and greece you know we are we are we are stopping them from doing those kind of bilateral thing. we are we are trying to institutionalize peace in europe through the european union but we are we don't understand that there is no central european union interest because European Union is not—it's—it's it's not like the United States of America. You know, they have different countries which have got very different interests. So, so the, for as long as we are trying to institutionalize peace through the European Union and having and trying to achieve a coherent European Union foreign policy or European Union defense policy, it's not going to help us because that's just not going to happen. You know, the Eastern European interests about keeping America in in that balance of power is very different compared to Germany, which wants to, uh, you know, pass that to us. So my fundamental point is, yes, there is an American interest in stopping hegemony in Europe. We would have be the preponderant navy in the European balance. We would still have the nuclear, you know, uh, power, but we should move. We should we should retrench our troops, logistics, infantry, armor. And all the small things that Europeans can do on their own, and by that way we can we can incentivize the, uh, the Europeans to take more uh, more burden when it comes to their security, and we can save some money on our own. So I think I think that's a I think that's a valid proposal that doesn't really go as far as like saying we need to just cut down NATO and get out of Europe. I mean that's not going to happen anyway. But I think, I think that reaches a middle ground of, of burden sharing, so to speak.
0: In, in terms of what we're currently incentivizing our European allies to do, there's been, um, you know, it makes sense that parts of Eastern Europe are considerably more hawkish and aggressive about what should be done, uh, you know, in support of Ukraine or uh, in, in opposition to Russia. But one of the most hawkish uh, powers outside of Eastern Europe has been Britain. Uh, wh- why, do you, why do you think that is?
2: That's a very good question. The... The simple answer is historical British foreign policy. Um, If you... So it's kind of funny, given that I, you know... uh, Funny for someone to say with my accent. But anyway, um, uh, Britain has got... So Britain lost uh, the empire. And it hasn't gotten used to the role of a secondary power in Europe. Um, The British foreign policy historically has been to see a disunited and destabilized European continent. And in order to do that, when Britain could do that on its own, it it had an empire and the imperial might behind it. Uh, That was a different scenario. But now that it doesn't, the simple way to do that is to ensure that America stays in the continent. And by definition, if America stays in the continent, there wouldn't be any European power that would rise up. Uh, militarily so that's a that's a very understandable instinct from british perspective it's not beneficial for america but it is completely understandable when it comes to britain the second is post brexit uh britain doesn't want european union to be to have a coherent uh independent foreign policy um or or, or a coherent trade policy even for, for that matter um one of the things that happened because of the ukraine war and this is by the way not my you know, research—it's—it's it's there in the research of of European think tanks. And you know, there was this—I think it was like ECIR or something—who just came out with this research paper a few months back about how Europe is vassalized when it comes to it comes to trade and energy policies because of this war in Ukraine. Um, the 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 simple answer to that question is there is a British interest in fomenting, uh, or at least continuing a conflict, even a simmering conflict in the eastern parts of Europe. Because that would lead to two things: one, Eastern Europeans will never feel secure, which means they would support Britain and British interest in keeping America in the continent; two, Germany and France uh, would not be uh, would not be able to focus purely on trade and energy politics because you know uh, the, the the fundamental energy of Western Europe comes from from the east. And three, America would not be able to retrench out of the continent, which means it would act as a power enhancer for British interests in the continent. So, again, this is not beneficial for the American strategy. I mean, British strategy, uh, yes, you know, allies and everything. But at the end of the day, the British strategic interest is very different from American. So I think that's something that one needs to understand.
1: One closing question: You've written a number of times recently about the legacy of the British Empire in India, and you argued that the Modi et cetera current, the Hindu nationalist current, uh, has been the true decolonization of India. What do you mean by that?
2: Uh, yeah, so that's a that's an interesting question. So I. So the idea of modern India, um, the way we know, is a British construct. Um, there was no centralized force um, in the way we know so far, um, with the kind of foreign policy or the kind of you know um, parliamentary system and rule of law and, and, and uh, English language and. All that stuff that's that's in modern India is, I mean, it, it it's a British construct essentially. Fundamentally, uh, India was you know uh, like like Europe in in 15th and 16th century. They were like a major power, Mughals, and there were like other powers, the Rajputs and the Punjabis and the and Bengal Nawabs and all that kind of stuff. South India and and they it was it was a feudal setup. Uh, Britain came, balance of power, uh, divide and rule. You know, uh, people think that Britain just came and conquered India. It didn't really happen. You know, essentially, Britain was invited by some of the powers to balance off the, uh, of the of some of their own threats. Like you know, you'd you'd find numerous examples of Britain going to war with one power and supporting the other, and then they're going to war with the other power and supporting this one. And also, there was this constant uh, conflict between the French East India Company and the British East India Company, uh, supporting rival powers. So. At the end of the day, it was a very slow process. But once that happened, uh, Britain sort of gave the the modern coherent structure to what we know uh, in India. The The Indian independence movement, on the other hand, was, again, a very interesting thing. It was essentially not, it was kind of like the American independence movement, but they didn't really want to change wholesale uh, everything that Britain you know, had in that country. But they want to essentially supplant and remove the imperial overlordship and have a local elite uh, take power. And that's pretty much what happened in, in America. And if you read the Indian Constitution, which is extremely influenced by, by the American Constitution, including the fundamental rights and the preamble and all that kind of stuff, um, that's essentially what the Indian nationalist movement uh, aspired to achieve. You know, it was... It was Most of the people were British educated, you know, they were, they, they went to Cambridge and Oxford to study and they came back and they said that, you know, we need to rule and have the, we're going to keep the the structure. We're going to keep the parliament. We're going to keep the rule of law. The Indian penal code that's used is from 1860, even now. So uh, all the things that's there, you know, they are the, 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 the military uniforms, the, the, the rituals, you know, the, the flags, the Indian Navy flag had the St. George's cross. So, um, you know, all that kind of stuff is, you know, it's, it's British influence, what is happening now is uh, a, a genuine decolonization, where even the Indian Western educated elite, Anglophile elite, are losing power to this, to this kind of extremely right-wing, uh, very localist, very nativist uh, kind of you know, force. It's kind of similar to what happened in Turkey, for example. You know, Turkey had a very westernized elite. Um, They weren't part of the West, but they were, like, you know, very similar. But that kind of changed, and then this this new nativism that came up in Turkey, and that's kind of, like, what's happening in India as well. Um, What I wrote in that essay was we don't really know how this might end. The simple reason is um, there is this idea in... In in political philosophy, that places which where there are post-colonial movements happening, or you know, uh, or post-colonialism is fundamentally a pre-modern concept. Like because modernity was influenced by by European influences and European structures and European governance systems. Once we see that slowly recede, we will not have a European light system, or even if there is, that won't continue for long what we would see is kind of like reverting back to how it used to be before European colonization. That is what happens. That is what is happening in Africa. You know, a majority of Africa, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, that's what's happening. Happened in Turkey, for example. It's happening in India. So uh, my my core thesis of that article is we don't know how that would influence Indian foreign policy. We don't know how that would influence India's structure if there is a huge centralized Hindu majoritarian power uh, in, in India, does that mean we would see the kind of uh, regional uh, flare-ups which would be opposed to that, how it used to be opposed to the Mughal Empire, for example, like will the, you know, because of language in South India and language in Bengal, you know, that is that going to happen? And, you know, there are 20 million Muslims. How is that going to affect uh, the Indian foreign policy? You know, which side are they going to, you know, side with? Uh, we are already seeing like, uh, return of kind of like the the Punjabi separatism uh, in the north, uh, the Kalistani movements. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, the the my thesis was that uh, what we are seeing essentially is a return to pre-modernism and given that it's returning to pre-modernism, we might see some pre-modernist setups um, returning back to India um, and that might influence Indian foreign policy. How that would influence, I don't really know. I don't want to predict anything because prediction is a risky business, but it's not going to be the same as we expect for the last 50 years.
1: Dr. Simantra Maitra, thank you for coming on Security Dilemma.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about how to join the fight for realism and a straighten U.S. foreign policy, check out our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review Security Dilemma on your podcast app and tune in for more episodes every Tuesday.